wonder if you recognise these words from a favourite song, uh, from a famous song. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. Anyone recognise it? From Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, I won't expose you to my falsetto. Um, You can look it up later uh, if you want to refresh your memory on just that classic uh, ballad. Uh, But the the first question in the first line of the song is, uh, is this the real life? And Hebrews chapter 8 answers that question by saying, no, this isn't the real life. This isn't the real thing. Uh, There is a reality that is more true than the things that we see and touch and experience. Uh, The author says that some of the most concrete things, uh, physical realities like uh, for the first audience, uh, the, the temple and its very tactile sacrifices, not just physical things but meaningful physical things, are only copies and shadows, it says in verse 5. And that the temple or the tabernacle that's been with the Israelites for centuries isn't nearly as true as a tent that they've never seen, but a tent that has always existed in heaven. He says, in in essence, that heaven is in fact, or, or at least in some sense, more real than what we know on earth. And I wonder how that sits with you. Maybe that's exactly the kind of, you know, high up, lofty, sort of ephemeral sort of thing you might expect to hear in a church, or, or, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe it seems to you too philosophical or abstract to even be interesting to you in the first place, or maybe the fact that it's philosophical makes you interested. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe to say that uh, this isn't the real life, but there's something more real, maybe that even irritates you a bit. Uh, because if none of this is real, what am I supposed to do with that? And, you know, how are we supposed to live meaningfully about realities that we can't see and touch? Or maybe it's a great relief to you because your experience of life so far has been painful. And so the thought that it's all some kind of dream that you might yet wake up from uh, sounds lovely in the end. Well, this is deeply philosophical and theological stuff, but it's also not impractical. It does raise some questions, but it answers even more questions than it raises. And the biggest answer uh, may not seem immediately obvious to you, but I I would say the the biggest answer uh, that this gives us is something like this, uh, and it's a sort of a summary of uh, the message of chapter 8 here, that you are most safe and grounded when you hold fast to Christ. You are most safe and grounded when you hold fast to Christ. And even that can be a tricky thing uh, to think about when uh, Christ is a, Jesus Christ is a man that none of us have seen with our eyes. How do we hold fast to someone that we can't see or touch? How do we feel safe in a life of real danger? How do we find grounding and foundation uh, in, in one who has been, uh, one who we can't see? And yet in every trial, I would say that you are most safe and grounded when you hold fast to Christ. I want to lend you a bit of context uh, for the book of Hebrews. We've kind of gotten this far in uh, without having 
taken much of a deep dive into uh, the, the context and the original setting of the book. We've given uh, little snippets of it here and there. And part of that is because, uh, obviously, the context of the book would have been most obvious to the people to whom it was first written. Uh, they didn't need to have their context spelled out for them. They just knew it. It was there. Uh, and so for us, reading this a couple of thousand years later, the context actually sort of uh, emerges as you read the book. Uh, and, the, and the point of the book seems to be at the end, holding fast to Christ, uh, but it's something that uh, you sort of arrive at as a kind of a crescendo after doing a lot of hard theological sort of work in, in the early chapters. But uh, So let's do just a little bit of work on the context. There's a lot we don't know. Uh, we don't know, we've talked about this exactly, who wrote the book. Uh, the author never identifies himself uh, and there's different theories throughout history but we just don't know. We know it's old, uh, we know it's from the first century. So we know it was written uh, from within uh, the lifetime of people who actually witnessed Jesus. Uh, so uh, it's authentic, it's old uh, but we don't know who wrote it. We don't know exactly who it was written to. Uh, the author, again, never says his name and never says exactly who he's writing it to. But the document was called Hebrews, or to the Hebrews, uh, since at least the second century. So tradition says its main audience is people who are uh, Jewish, Hebrew people. Uh, but the context does that too. So it's not just tradition and history that gives us that information. Uh, the content uh, of the book gives us that as well. Like you might remember from last week, uh, where the author started talking from chapter 5 about Jesus as being a priest. And while the language of priesthood doesn't tend to be intrinsically fascinating, I don't think, for most of us, the assumption of the writer appears to be that, uh, that the Jewish priesthood is a subject that the audience knows and cares a lot about. Um, and so Hebrews is a good name for the letter. It's a, it's a letter written to Hebrew people with Hebrew concerns. Uh, and to understand the letter, it does take a bit more cultural and theological background knowledge to fully break into it than a lot of other New Testament books. A lot of books in the Bible you can pick up and read and go, I can feel like this is speaking to me. Um, and Hebrews, uh, I feel like you have to work a little bit harder to, to reach that point. There's a lot of ancient concerns that seem a little bit disconnected from us uh, but by reading the letter we can get a pretty good idea of the people it's written to uh, and although we can't pinpoint an exact date we can also get a pretty good idea of their circumstances uh, though that doesn't get fully spelled out until later so I'm going to jump ahead a thing that we haven't done yet to chapter 10 let me introduce you uh, to some words in chapter 10 that perhaps we should have done before now the writer says this in verse 32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The former days after you were enlightened is, you know, at the point, presumably, of their conversion, where they turned to Christ from their old ways, and on so doing, they met suffering and hardship. And it describes it, uh, there's, there's imprisonment, there's the plundering of property, 
Uh, There's public exposure to reproach and affliction. So the author is writing to a group of of people who not only have deep Jewish roots, uh, they have been through a great deal of suffering because they've begun to follow Jesus as the author and perfecter of their faith. Uh, And as I've explained at other times, the the first outbreak of persecution against Christians was internal. Uh, It wasn't the Romans. Uh, The Jewish people who believed in Jesus, uh, the the first sort of wave of Jewish people to believe in Jesus, they believed in him because he appeared to them to fulfil the teachings of their Jewish law. And so they continued to meet in synagogues and to go to the temple, as they'd always done, to continue to gather with their people. Uh, But in time they were cast out by the people they thought were their people, Uh, because it became apparent over time uh, that Judaism and following Christ, Judaism in the old sense and following Christ in a new way were not compatible with each other. And so they were persecuted in the first instance by the Jews. And you might remember from the book of Acts, uh, Saul was one of uh, the first men to go and imprison and persecute uh, Christian people. And he he did it not on behalf of the Romans, uh, but on behalf of the Jewish uh, authorities. Uh, At various times uh, around this time in the Roman Empire, the Jewish people were protected by the Romans. Uh, So, uh, you know, it sort of, it goes up and down a little bit, their relationship with the Romans who were over them. Uh, But at various times, they uh, they were protected. And so uh, the Romans agreed to let the Jews do their Jewish things and offer their, uh, their temple sacrifices and maintain their own God instead of insisting that they turn to the Roman gods. Uh, and, uh, and, so, um, and so for a Christian person in the first instance uh, to, uh, to uh, be able to align yourself with the, uh, with the Jewish people uh, gave you a, a bit of safety. Uh, a bit of security, because there's already a relationship that's built between the hierarchies of, of the Jews and the Romans, and so to align yourself with the Jews is to enjoy the security of being a Jew. But then maybe you've heard of Nero. He was emperor in Rome in the 50s and the 60s. And in the early 60s, maybe you've heard of the Great Fire in Rome. And Nero was blamed for having started the fire. Uh, In fact, many historians believe Nero did start the fire. Uh, But an ancient Roman writer named Tacitus, uh, whose life overlapped with this period, wrote this. He said to get rid of the report that Nero had begun the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So who does Christus sound like? Jesus Christ. This was the name uh, that, uh, that he was known by, uh, by the Romans. And they thought the Christians were abominable because the Christians weren't Roman and they weren't serving the Roman gods. And so Nero decided to blame the fire on the Christians and, uh, and it gave him a pretty nifty excuse to persecute the Christians. Uh, and what, how does it describe it? Inflicting the most exquisite tortures. And so it's pretty likely that these exquisite tortures under the reign of Nero uh, is a reference to the hatred and torture uh, that, uh, that seems to be referenced in Hebrews chapter 10. So all of this means... 
the audience of the book of Hebrews have three key attributes. They are Christian. They had come to Christ through Judaism. uh, And for having come to Christ, they had suffered a great deal. And so the temptation for them, can you imagine, it must have been very strong to return to Judaism. Not only because Judaism for them was familiar, uh, there, there were patterns and rhythms in the day and the year, uh, and, uh, and they knew what it meant to be Jews because they'd been grown up, they'd been brought up that way. Uh, but also it would have pleased their families to return to that way because uh, to abandon Judaism to follow Christ uh, was not a popular move. It would have provided some protection from the Roman authorities since the Jews at least had a relationship and an agreement with the, Jew, uh, with the Romans. Uh, and so you might avoid that sort of persecution. And maybe... Just maybe, can you imagine this? If Christianity is merely an extension of Judaism, just a couple of extra steps along the same road, then just maybe the differences are so small that it wouldn't be so devastating to just edge back that way a little. It's the same God after all. It's the same sort of path. Uh, We can just take a few backward steps, return to following the same God, but do it in the old way and keep our heads down and our nose is clean, and no more trouble. The pressure was immense, and it would have been easy to return to Judaism. To you and I, it's a different temptation. To return to Judaism would be a very strange thing, because it's not the thing that we grew up with. Uh, But to return to our old ways, uh, or the ways, uh, just the prevailing ways of the people around us, that is a constant temptation for us. It's just a different spin on the same temptation that the Hebrews faced. But the author of this letter is crystal clear. There is no way back. As soon as you took one extra step down that path towards following Christ, the path behind you was obliterated. The bridges were burned. You can't return that way. And so I hope you can start to see how the message of Hebrews chapter 8, that you are most safe and grounded when you hold fast to Christ, might relate to uh, this set of circumstances. That as Christians following Christ, they are safe because they are holding fast to him. There is no path back to Judaism since it's been shown to now be lacking and obsolete. And that with regards to the suffering that that, uh, that they've been enduring, the suffering is temporary. And and in a way, the suffering is a sort of an illusion Not that the suffering isn't real or it's not actually happening, but that what the suffering appears to communicate, uh, and it appears to communicate that God isn't in control and that Christ isn't king, and that there's no safety or security in knowing Christ. Well, that's not true at all. That is an illusion. That is a myth. Because Jesus is the true priest in the true tent, which is in heaven, and he truly reigns. And in the meantime, we just kind of got to believe it and hang on to it. And hold fast to him. So having done a fair bit of background work, let's have a bit of a chip away at Hebrews chapter 8 and, and, and see, how, uh, see how this works. So we're going to read, again, most of the verses in here. Hebrews one and, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The point in what we're saying is this. It's pretty nice when an author says, this is the point, flagged it up front. The point, what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, 
a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. See the implication that there is a true tent set up by the Lord, one that you've never seen, that's in heaven with God, and the, the tent set up by man is not the true tent. So what's the tent? What's it all about? Well, this language of tent uh, would have been, again, more familiar to, uh, to the Hebrew audience uh, that it was written to. He goes on to talk about Moses shortly, and we'll come to that. Uh, but uh, if we go back a couple of thousand years from here, uh, from there, uh, we've got uh, the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt. Uh, Moses uh, is sort of their deliverer. Uh, Under God's hand, uh, he leads them out of Egypt. And as they're in the wilderness, God appears to Moses and says, um, says, I will be your people. I will be your God, sorry, and you will be my people. And he sets up a framework, uh, which he sort of calls a covenant for how you can relate to me. Uh, And there's a bunch of rules about, uh, particularly there's chapters and chapters and chapters in the book of Exodus about the constructing of a tent Or you might be more familiar uh, with the Bible word tabernacle, which really just means tent. Although we like to use special sounding words for special things uh, because it feels more special. But tabernacle is tent. And the structure was roughly that, uh, that that there was a place, a holy place that the priests could go and offer sacrifices and serve on behalf of the people. And then there was a most holy place. Uh, that was shielded off, that only one priest could attend to very occasionally and only under very ser- special circumstances, uh, where uh, it, was, it was believed and understood that this was uh, the most undiluted place of God's presence. And this tent existed within the camp of the people. And then the temple, the Jewish temple, was based off the same thing. So t- tabernacle or tent kind of equals uh, the temple. Uh, It was set up in a very similar structure. It was in Jerusalem where the Israelite people or the Hebrew people are are gathered and camped around and in there there's a holy place where only a handful of priests can go and then a most holy place where really only God is and one priest very occasionally is able to go in uh, under very special circumstances. And this temple which is bricks and stone and the tabernacle uh, which is its old equivalent, it's, it's uh, uh, what's it, portable equivalent when they're wandering through the, uh, through the wilderness. These are not the real thing. These are shadows of the real thing. These are representations of something that is more true. So we skip a little bit onto verses 4 and 5. There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so the idea that the author of Hebrews is starting to get across here isn't just that uh, Moses was given this idea that, you know, the tabernacle is the perfect, finished, completed product, or even that the temple that would come after it is the perfect finished completed product but actually these are shadows or representations of a true thing that Moses was given special eyes to see when he met with God a a true uh, these are models uh, or or physical representations of something that he'd witnessed see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain 
And in fact, you know, I've sort of talking, spoke, talking, <laughs> spoken about the fact that uh, we've got uh, a tabernacle, which was kind of the first representation of the temple. Well, actually, uh, the illustration extends even further. Uh, we have both of these representations of God uh, being shielded in some sense, but also present in another sense uh, with his people. But if we go back before the tabernacle, uh, we have the Garden of Eden. Uh, where God uh, created the earth and God is uh, in heaven uh, and the earth is below and God has created a garden in which he will come and meet on occasion with his people and dwell with them. And then what's interesting as you read about uh, the, the pattern that God gave for the tabernacle and then the temple is that there's plants and palm trees and things uh, adorning all of this stuff. So all of these, so the tabernacle was meant to represent the garden and then the tent to represent the garden. And then all of this really is representing this greater overarching thing, uh, the nature of reality itself, that God's desire is to meet with us and to be with us. I'm going to pause for a moment for a little discussion about what is heaven. Because I think that most of us think that heaven is the place that you go to when you die. And that is not actually the best definition of heaven according to the Bible. If you read, the Bible does talk about a place, uh, eternal life with God. But heaven isn't normally the word used to describe that. Heaven is described as the dwelling place of God. Heaven is, uh, heaven is also the word for sky. Um, so it's this, it's this up there, beyond our sight, sort of place where God is that we can't see and we can't quite access. It's the dwelling place of God. But the Bible teaches us that God uh, has chosen in his kindness to make his dwelling with man and to make himself known to us here on earth. Uh, we, we, re, uh, we say in the Lord's Prayer almost every week, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven isn't the place of eternal life exactly. Heaven is the place where God is and where everything is as it should be. Everything really is. Everything is true. Everything is just. Everything is pure. And this is this corrupted sort of realm where, you know, we say in the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're admitting that everything on earth is not as it should be. It is not according to uh, God's will in the purest, uh, most obvious sense. But there is this recognition in that line of the prayer that there is a place, there is a realm where God's order prevails. We've said that this is more real. The heavenly stuff is more real. And what we experience is a shadow. Uh, reality versus shadow uh, isn't the only way Hebrews seeks to illustrate how much greater it is to know Christ. It's not just that knowing Christ is more true, uh, but knowing Christ is more good. It is greater and better to know him. So verses 6 to 7, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion 
to look for a second. If you were here in the first week of us looking at the book of Hebrews, uh, one of our elders, Ben, uh, preached on Hebrews chapter 1 and he said a pretty good summary of the book of Hebrews uh, is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And certainly the, the theological emphasis of Hebrews, the, the argument that the uh, writer is making again and again is that Jesus is better. Uh, in my little summary of, of the book of Hebrews, saying hold fast that you can see on the screen, uh, that is only uh, that is one and the same as to say Jesus is better, uh, but it's sort of the application of the fact. Jesus is better, therefore hold fast to Jesus. Don't go the other way. Don't return to the old ways. Hold fast to him because he is better. His new way, his new covenant is better. Uh, it talks about um, in verse 7... Uh, so the covenant, by the way, is, is all that God had revealed to Moses. Uh, the covenant was the agreement that God made for how God, uh, for, in the Old Testament for how people were to meet and relate to God. And so it involved things like ceremonial washings. It involved things like uh, blood sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, it involved things like priests being the mediator between God and man. Uh, it involved things like a, t- a tabernacle or a tent or a temple. And then he says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Does that mean that there is fault in the old covenant? That God had deliberately, uh, through the Old Testament, led his people somewhat up the garden path, saying, go this way and you'll be fine, and then just sort of whips Jesus out of the hat a couple of thousand years later saying, well, no, no, this is the way now, this is a new thing. What does he mean to say that if it had been faultless? Well, he goes on uh, in, uh, in the next verse to say where the fault lies. And the fault with the old covenant isn't the covenant itself. It was good. The fault is with the people who broke it. Uh, and so that covenant has to be wiped away. Well, it doesn't really. God could then just judge his people because of their failure uh, to keep the covenant. But God in his grace has established a new one. Uh, verses 8 and 9, he finds fault with them when he says, and this is a quote from Jeremiah uh, in the Old Testament, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The fault with the old covenant was with the people. They didn't keep it. And so God either needed to uh, hold good on his word and judge and punish the people for their failure or in his grace introduce something new a better way a a way that is more true because it's actually the way that uh, was being presented to them all along in Christ this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbour and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. 
he's talking about a new covenant, a new way. This is in the Old Testament, by the way. So remember, the Old Testament isn't bad. Uh, it's not outdated exactly, uh, because uh, because even in we count on its authority when it's predicting these things that would happen in the future. And so if the author of the book of Hebrews was saying Old Testament equals bad, then he wouldn't use quotes from the Old Testament to support the claims that he's making now. This is still God's revealed word. He says this covenant, uh, that the new way will be better. Uh, I think it, it seems like the thing that's missing from what he's presenting here about the, this new covenant is this idea of ongoing, relentless sacrifice and temple observance and things like that. But there is a new, more organic, less mediated way where we can know God. We can just know him. Because by his spirit, he's, make a, he's made his, himself known to us. The final verse of chapter 8 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I've got a picture in my mind of, um, uh, is it Alice in Wonderland? Uh, where she's on the path and the path gets swept away from behind her. Is that an image from the cartoon? Uh, probably in the book as well. Except we don't read books, we just watch the movies. That's kind of what it's like. The, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they've, they've had this well-worn, familiar path of, of observing the law. They knew where they stood in relation to God. And then they saw on this path an extension. And at the end of it, a garden where they could meet with God. And that was the way through Christ. And so they take a step off the end and the path behind them gets washed away. It's obsolete. It's gone. There is no turning back. Now I've said um, we have something in common and, there's, and, and something quite different between us and the original audience. For them, uh, the temptation was quite clearly to return to their old ways, which was Judaism. Uh, for us, the temptation, I think, is quite different. Uh, to return either to our old ways or at least uh, to the ways uh, that we see around us because it's just easier. The temptation might, like for them, come because of suffering. Because Christ asks of us terrible things like sacrifice, like doing things that are hard at first for the sake of others. Uh, and, and he sets us up to expect that there will be persecution in following him. And you don't win friends by being a Christian. And yet, as dangerous and treacherous as it might feel to sort of leap off in faith and follow Christ who you can't see... There is nothing safer than being with him. How is it that uh, people uh, in, the Old in the New Testament times uh, and, and Christian people still today die for their faith? When all they've known is this life and yet they're, given, they're presented with the option of do you follow Christ and die because we'll put you to death or do you turn your back on him and live? And yet they choose to die because this life they perceive is not as real as the life to come. There is something more real, more true to come. Something we can only take hold of at the moment by faith, but something that's promised to us by Christ. 
Suffering is a thing that can draw us back or draw us out or draw us away, but we must hold fast to Christ. Uh, the, the flip side of suffering is wealth. Uh, because the world can offer uh, all these sorts of promises of, you know, cut this corner or, or do this or give up on sacrifice, for crying out loud, that's no way forward or to, that's no way to get ahead. That's the other draw card, to, to pursue wealth. And yet again, we're told that, uh, that the wealth of the world is an illusion. It is temporary and passing away. But the wealth of knowing Christ in the life to come and of holding fast to him even now is greater by far and let's go with this it is even more true it's probably worth remembering uh, like i said hebrews was written within the lifetime of people who had actually seen jesus people who knew him for real and some of these people had witnessed that he'd risen from the grave and some of them witnessed that he rose into heaven to a place where they couldn't see him anymore, but they believed uh, that he was uh, with God. And so when I say that we receive this stuff by faith and we've just kind of got to hang on by faith, I don't mean, you know, brute force that you just sort of thump into yourself that, I, well, I've, I've got to believe, I've got to believe, I've got to believe. There, there is a, a thing uh, to hang on to here, that Jesus was seen, Jesus rose, Jesus uh, ascended into heaven and he is there now he is our great high priest and where he is is more real than what we have uh, so let's pray that we'll hold fast to him god we ask that you will help us uh, in this life uh, of uh, where we're bombarded by the senses that you've given us uh, of uh, taste and touch and sight and sound. Uh, we ask that you will help us to, uh, to know that there is more, to remember and believe you when you say that there is more, that treasure on earth will be destroyed by moths and rust, but treasure in heaven is eternal the suffering on earth is temporary but paradise with you uh, there's no comparison father having stepped onto the path of following jesus christ there is a sort of um, treacherousness to it there's no going back and the path forward isn't uh, isn't always entirely clear but there is a safety in it too, that we are held by Christ. He is our priest. Uh, he lives and he promise us, promises us life uh, for eternity with him and you. Amen.